Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Lanides, and alongside me is my co-host, Josh Molina. Josh, how's it going, man? I'm doing great. Really looking forward to the show, Phil. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about that. Uh, Inside the Hexagon, we are a show that we are about diving into the history of Strike Force. Uh, this is the number two promotion behind the UFC back when it was in existence between 2006 and 2013. We're highlighting the major events, the major fighters, the major, major milestones, and all of that. On the episode today, we're going to be discussing Shamrock versus Lee, a hugely successful, very important event in the history of Strike Force and really MMA. Overall, it was a, a passing of the torch, so to speak, from Frank Shamrock to Kung Lee, and really one of my favorite Strike Force events of all time. What, what did you? What do you think about it, Josh? This was Strike Force's coming out show. This was like their WrestleMania, as far as I'm concerned, because it was where everything came together. And Strike Force said to the MMA world. I'm here to stay and I'm here to compete with the UFC. And there's a lot of reasons why that is the case. We're going to talk about them on this show. But in my opinion, this show was Strike Force's greatest moment. Yeah, and I think you could definitely make a case for that. We still have a long way to go in the history of the promotion. I mean, we're only we're in 2008, and the promotion stuck around for another five years. But uh, yeah, let's let's dive into it and see where we're at. But as we like to uh, on our on these episodes, we we kind of dive into the fallout from the previous Strike Force event when we kick off a new episode. But there's really not a whole lot that affected Strike Force as a whole coming out of Strike Force at the Dome, which was again the previous event. The main eventers for that, Bob Sapp and Jan Norte, they would never come back into the into the promotion. So that was a one and done for both of them. Uh, both Jorge Masvidal and Lyle Beerbaum got wins, but neither would be back in Strike Force for a while. Joe Diesel Riggs was injured, but he'd be back five months later, as would Corey the one Devella who had beaten and hurt Riggs with a slam takedown. But that's really about it as far as inside the hexagon goes. Uh, no other, you know, no Josh Thompson, no Gilbert Melendez, no Frank, no Kung, no, you know, the, most of those guys or none of those guys were on the card. So really it was kind of almost almost a standalone one-off event in a lot of ways. So really probably the biggest deal coming out of that was Strike Force's new agreement with HDNet Fights, which would see the promotion broadcast four events on that channel in 2008 and as we discussed on our last event episode, uh, Kenny Rice and Frank Trigg were the commentators for that, and it was really a, a huge improvement. They used CompuStrike liberally throughout the ev the event, and and just it was really good. So uh, that's really probably the biggest thing coming out of that. But let's get into the the fight announcements and some of the you know who the fighters were on this card in early January of 2008. It was announced that Frank Sh Shamrock would defend his Strike Force middleweight title against Kung Lee at an event at the HP Pavilion on March 29th. The event would air live on Showtime and include two Strike Force bouts, two Elite XC bouts, and one bout featuring a Strike Force fighter against an Elite XC fighter. In case you haven't figured it out yet, this would be another one of those co-promoted Strike Force Elite XC events. Uh, Gilbert Melendez versus Josh. Thompson, the long-awaited Strike Force lightweight title fight was expected to happen, and Jake Shields was expected to make his Strike Force debut, though he would be doing it as an Elite XC fighter. However, very quickly after that, it was revealed that Thompson had separated his shoulder and had to pull out, so little-known Gabe Lemley would be taking his place in the title fight. 
Closer to the event itself, Shields, who was now to face Drew Fickett for the inaugural Elite XC Welterweight Championship, also had to pull out uh, due to an injury. Fickett would instead, instead face Jay Sook Lim in a non-title fight. Uh, Lim was going to fight Nick Diaz on the card in the Strike Force debut for both, but Diaz was pulled for unknown reasons, so Fickett and Lim were matched up instead. I did want to mention, you know, I've kind of lamented and Josh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but I've kind of lamented non-title fights. I'm not a big fan of of non-title fights, but in a situation like this where you've got Thompson versus Melendez, that's the money fight. That's the fight everybody wants to see, and one of them has to pull out, uh, specifically the challenger. I could see making this Gabe Lemley fight a non-title fight. That I think this might be the only case, you know, a short notice type situation. Um, I think this might be the only case where I'm, you know, kind of okay with a non-title fight. Uh, but Josh, did you have any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that makes sense that if you did not earn the title shot, but you are willing to step up and compete that it makes sense that it should not be a title fight because what if the, what if the person wins and, uh, now you have the person who's not the best guy technically as your champion. So, yeah, I think that you could make a case for why, why, you know, in a situation like this, it should be a non-title fight for sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I will say I, the best guy is not always the champion. I mean, no disrespect to Matt Sarah, but you know, Matt Sarah knocking out GSP, that was, you know, I don't, I won't call it a fluke, but that's not how that fight was expected or supposed to go quote unquote. So if, if the, you know, if Lemley beats Thompson or I'm sorry, if Lemley beats Melendez, I think he deserves the title. He was the better fighter on that night. However, you know, I also, at the same time, I, I, I can understand if it's a short notice situation, I can, I can understand that because then the champion's been preparing for somebody else, you know, game planning for that guy. And it comes in, you know, and changes things, but. Well, look at, look at, uh, I mean, Conor McGregor. Nate Diaz, right? First fight, right? Uh, Nate Diaz was a replacement, correct? I mean, he came in at the last minute. Uh, it, it disrupts everything. Like, like you, you, you're, you're training for one person, and then you're going in there against somebody else, and it's you, styles make fights. So I think you know, there's there's an argument definitely to be made. Obviously, if if I got in the ring with John Jones and landed an incredible elbow and a right hand. Then I'm the best, right? For a moment, but right. uh, not not really. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So. I mean, you're still not a better fighter than him. But that's. Yeah. yeah. But that's. I mean, that's what I love about about combat sports. That's what what I love about MMA and boxing is that you you can be that Rocky. You know, you can be that guy that's not necessarily the better fighter, but you put in the work and you you know game plan correctly and get that one that one shot. I don't like fluke or lucky. I don't I don't like that kind of stuff. Uh, because you you've got to train and you've got to do the work and and if you but if you do the work and you know there's we've seen stuff where there's certain fighters I can't think of any specific examples off the top of my head but you you've seen the where look at Michael fighters, Bis Michael Bisping and Luke Rockhold yeah. yeah yeah no that's that's I I would you know think most would say Rockhold was more talented and and the better fighter but he clearly. Uh, didn't take Bisping as seriously as he should. And I have all the respect in the world for a guy like Michael Bisping, who not the most talented fighter and guy who'd suffered some pretty brutal losses. I mean, my God, the Dan Henderson was at UFC 100, I think fight where uh, Henderson knocked him out with the H bomb and then fell like fell on him with that forearm. And just, I mean, that was just nasty uh, and for a guy to suffer a loss like that and then be able to come back, work himself into contention and then beat again, a guy that's probably more talented that's exactly, you know, kind of what we're talking about here. And, you know, GSP 
uh, you know, if, if does GSP come back and challenge for the middleweight title if it's not Bisping? Probably not. But right. you know, anyways. But uh, yeah, I don't want to jump, go off too deep of a rabbit hole there. But yeah, this is probably the one time where I'm okay. You know, the one instance where I'm okay with a a non-title fight for a champion. But anyways, also on the main card, Mike Kyle would return to Strikeforce against Wayne Cole, and Joey Villasenor would return to the Hexagon to take on UFC veteran Ryan Jensen. Uh, it was supposed to originally be Villasenor versus Joe Diesel Riggs, but he had to pull out, as we mentioned, due to the injured back he sustained at at the Dome. On the undercard, Darren Uya Noyama would take on Anthony Antdog Figueroa in a bantamweight battle. Jesse Jones would tangle with Jesse Gillespie. Luke Stewart would take a big step up in competition and face grizzled UFC vet Tiki Gosen. And Billy Evangelista would would fight Marlon Sims. Uh, I want to mention that Paul Buentello, George Santiago, and Paul Daly were all rumored to be fighting on this card, but none of them did. Uh, but let's. I want to dive into the main event, of course. I mean, this is... Because of the you know the the Thompson uh, Melendez fight falling apart, I mean this is probably as close to a you know like a one fight card as we've gotten with Strike Force so far. Where really this this card was all about the main event. I mean it really really was. Obviously there were some some very entertaining fights other than this one, but this was really all about that. A very monumental fight. Shamrock and Lee were the biggest draws in the Bay Area bar none. Uh, this event, which was the biggest strike force had put on sh- since Shamrock versus Brony, would sell well, if not sell out, and would likely draw a big rating on Showtime. So there was, there was a lot of meat on the bone here, but a lot of that came from the main event. Yeah, if you were flipping channels and you were checking out what was on Showtime, or you, you know you came across it, you would think, like, "Where have I been my whole life?" Like, there's this whole other MMA organization. This looks incredible, and it looks different than the UFC. It was co-promoted by Elite XC. I mean, it looked spectacular. If you were just watching it, the production values, the live crowd. I was there that night. Uh, I was uh, in press row covering the event. Uh, it was a raucous electric atmosphere. It was, and I know I'm going to say this several times during this show, and it's probably going to annoy you, Phil, but it was very much a pro wrestling house. It was incredible. It was a whole different kind of energy. And uh, you had two two really popular good guys taking each other on, which made it even well, more. You thought they were, they thought they were good guys until Frank got in the cage that night. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, Frank is very versatile. He's like Chris Jericho. He could go both ways and be a good guy or a bad guy in a moment. Uh, but they both had a large following in the house. And that's one of the reasons why the show was almost sold out was because they had a lot of people there cheering for them. Um, I interviewed Kong leading up to this fight, uh, you know, as sort of a coverage for the San Jose Mercury News. And uh, Kong was super jacked. He was ready. He knew this was his moment. He knew that if he could beat Frank Shamrock, he'd forever be cemented as also a MMA fighter and not just a guy who was an expert in kickboxing and Sancho fighting, but he was also going to be a legitimate MMA dude when people look back in history. And so he was ready to go. Um, He's, you know, the thing about Kung Lee is he's super intense. You just see it in his eyes. He's all business. He doesn't goof off. He's not much of a promo guy. He's all about his fighting. And uh, 
uh, Mike Aframowitz, our former boss, as you have mentioned, uh, you know, he said in the story that I wrote leading up to this that both fighters would be earning comfortable six-figure salaries, and I know you're going to go over that later on today. But, I mean, I just can't say enough about the stage that this fight took place on. It was incredible. Yeah, it, you know, and you mentioned how Kung is not really a promo guy, and I think that's that's appropriate. Frank was really... You know, you look back at the Baroni buildup and how they had kind of a, a heel face dynamic there, and Phil would talk up the fight and Frank would talk up the fight. Kung didn't seem interested in, you know, he's not a smack talker. That's just not him. That's not his style. And Frank can be a, a baby face or he can be a heel. I mean, he, either one. And I think in this one, I think he realized that he was going to have to kind of be the heel because Kung was not playing ball when it came to how they were promoting the fight. Like, there was no good guy, bad guy, just from the outset. And I think Frank started to slide into that heel role because he figured that he had to. Um, he was really, uh, it, it's very evident in this press release. So I'll get, let me get to this. In a press release, Frank said, quote, being number two isn't such a bad thing. So Kung has nothing to be ashamed of. <laughs> has nothing to be ashamed of. But there's a big difference between being number one and number two. Lee will find that out soon enough. I mean, that's well, I gotta... pre pretty clear he's the bad guy here. Yeah, well, speaking of bad guys, you know, I've coached a ton of youth sports in my career, and uh, I'd always tell my team when we were in the championship, you know what second place is? It's last place. And I'm not saying that made any of the moms very happy, but, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> but, um, you know, when you're in the dugout or, you know, you're on the bench and you're just talking to your team, uh, that's the kind of stuff they need to hear just so that they know, hey. This is you want to you want to remember this positively or not, you know, and and so that's that's basically what Frank's doing. You know, he's just promoting this this fight and, and saying, hey, look, you ain't wrong with number two. <laughs> You're going to find out soon enough. <laughs> that's just classic. Frank. It is classic. And and you, here's so Lee's more sportsmanlike and you can see just this is a perfect example of the difference between these two as far as their approach. Quotes or uh, Kung said, quote, people have been wondering when I'd take the next step in the cage and fight an established superstar and world champion. Well, here it is. The fans are in for a great fight. End quote. End quote. I mean, you, you just couldn't. And I don't know if they showed. Sometimes they'll show Kung or they'll show the other their quotes. And, you know, I don't know if Kung was responding to Frank and just ignored it or just Kung hadn't seen the quote. And you know, maybe it wouldn't have mattered. But very, very clear distinction between the two and how you know, how they, uh, how they were approaching the, the promotion of this fight. I did want to mention Shamrock had, uh, Shamrock clearly had other things on his mind during this time, because apparently he was going to fight his adopted brother, Ken, uh, later on, uh, later, actually the following year, this was in the works in January of 08. Frank told MMA weekly that he planned to fight Ken in the first quarter of 2009 at an event called blood brothers, Shamrock versus Shamrock. He said, quote, Oh yeah, unless I die, it's going to happen. And quote, Continuing on, he added, quote, I do know the weight will be at 205. That's what Ken wanted. The where doesn't matter. The when will be the first quarter of 2009. The how will be right hand, left hook, right hand, and then that will be it, end quote. Josh, I got I remember this. I remember seeing a Blood Brothers, like, promo. Do you, Josh, do you remember this at all? Do you remember this being planned? Yeah, I remember this. I, I remember it being talked about, and I remember it being very intriguing. And... For me, at that time, I had Ken Shamrock as like the 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 better fighter in my head, the bigger fighter. Uh, 
for, you know, Frank, and I'm going to talk about this in a bit, Frank had largely been written out of the UFC history. So I remember thinking at the time, wow, that's going to be Ken Shamrock doing some damage on Frank Shamrock uh, for sure. But I do remember seeing that uh, at the time, uh, seeing some kind of promotion about that. Yeah, I, I definitely remember it. And, you know, I'd gotten to know, not know personally, know Frank at this point, but I I, rem, I I was more aware of Frank at this point because I look I when Frank had his run you know his major run in the UFC I wasn't a fan at that point I was totally into pro wrestling didn't really care about UFC Ken Shamrock was not even on top when I because I really got into MMA in like oh four oh five like so Ken was kind of at the end of his run as at least as far as a top level guy I was really intrigued by Ken versus Tito that was really probably the first. MMA feud that really hooked me and got me involved. And I wanted Ken to smash Tito. I could not stand Tito. He was such an instigator and Ken being a WWF guy, of course I was pulling for him and it always killed me that Ken could just, I mean, he just, Tito was bigger and better. I mean, it's just the way that it was. And you know, sorry to interrupt, but you know, you're talking about the honorable Tito Ortiz, who was just elected <laughs> yeah. to the city council in Huntington yeah, Beach. So that's show, true. show some respect. Show some respect. Yeah, yeah my, my apologies. Um, and I think he's demanding a recount for the presidential election, even oh, though my Trump lost by like 4 million votes in <laughs> California or whatever it was. Anyways. Uh, but I, man, I wanted Tito to, and, and by the way, I'm actually more of a fan of Tito now. I heard Tito on one of the podcasts I listened to. was like a like a leadership type podcast. And I was really impressed with his mindset and the way that just his, his willingness to do the work and all that stuff. And just a lot of the things that he's overcome in his life. Uh, I, I, yeah, I'm actually a fan of Tito in the sense of like just his willingness to work hard. And, and so I just, I did want to put that out there. So much respect to him in, in that vein, but yeah, I wanted Ken to smash him and, you know, obviously that never happened, but this Frank versus Ken fight, yeah, man. I just, I mean, Frank talked about the buildup, the marketing for the event, how he saw it happening. He said, quote, it's going to be because it's going to be because this is the story that everyone can understand. Even if you don't like fighting, you get the story, you get the storyline, you get the characters, you get the players. I think this is what breaks our sport open to the masses for real. End quote. And then he said, Quote, I've been examining the sport for a while. I think HBO has got it right for boxing doing the 24-7 series, having a term of marketing, creating a docudrama, docu-reality type atmosphere leading up to an event. We're going to do the same with Blood Brothers. This will be the first fight that has a solid 13 to 14 months of marketing behind it and and real storylines, real stars. I think this is the fight that's going to change the sport of mixed martial arts, make it more talent-oriented instead of company-oriented. A lot to unpack there, but I loved... I loved hearing that and and Frank's idea and Frank is very much a fighter first person. You know, what's best for the fighter and that plays way better with a guy like Scott Coker than it does Dana White, which he'll tell you everything you need to know about his relationship with both men. This uh, the WWE is they're the juggernaut in pro wrestling. UFC is the juggernaut in MMA where they just have to put UFC on the marquee or WWE on the marquee. And it doesn't matter as much. It does now, obviously, who's on the card does make a difference. I mean, you're not going to sell out, you know, no no disrespect to, you know, Rafael Dos Anjos, but you're not going to sell out, you know, a 17,000-seat arena with him in the main event unless it's, you know, Conor McGregor on the other side. WWE, you know, you're not going to sell out a 17,000, 20,000-person arena with Dana Brooke in the main event. 
you know, that's so it does matter who is on the card and who's in the main event and all that stuff, but they have branded themselves so well that when you think of MMA and that's why, you know, when you tell somebody, when I used to tell people, Oh yeah, I work in MMA, I would say, Oh yeah, I work in MMA cage fighting UFC. You know, like I would always kind of include all those. So they know, because I knew they would recognize it from UFC. And then, you know, I'm sure those that work in wrestling, you know, they'll mention WWE first usually because that's, that's what they, they know. So Frank saying that this was going to be more of an independent type promotion. And, and I mean, this wasn't even going to be hosted. We don't even know where this was going to be fought or anything like that. So I, I, I thought this was really intriguing back then. And I got excited as I was reading about all this, and, you know, <laughs> disappointed that it, you know, never ended up happening. But for those that are not aware of the story, Frank and Ken Shamrock were adopted as troubled youth by a man named Bob Shamrock when they were very young. They were raised in a boy's home where athletics was pushed really, really hard. Both boys excelled with both getting into fighting. And I did want to plug real quick. Ken did a very fascinating two-part interview with Stone Cold Steve Austin on his podcast. And you can hear the story of his upbringing. He actually just uh, – Stone Cold isn't doing new episodes right now. Um, so the, the Austin pod- podcast is all, you know, basically reposted older episodes or what they're calling classics. And uh, they just reposted the one with Ken as we record this within the last month or so. It's definitely worth a listen to hear Ken's take on this upbringing. And he does talk about Frank a, a, a fair amount and they do. He does talk about the feud and all that stuff. So it's worth checking out. Um, unfortunately, Frank had a falling out with both Ken and Bob. And, and from what I read, the split was due to a disagreement over training with Ken reportedly, tell, reportedly telling Frank he just didn't have what it takes to be a world champion. He said something like, you're just going to spend the rest of your life running my gyms. Uh, you know, obviously you can see why Frank would be, <laughs> would be offended by that. Uh, and, you know, Frank did go on to become a multi-time world champion, which is ironic because uh, I believe Ken won, won uh, obviously won belts in, in UFC and Pancrase. So both of them made it. But, you know, things went from there. They didn't speak for years. And then uh, and there are a lot of interviews. They The two had a sit-down interview. You can watch it on YouTube and, and you know, if you want to dig deeper. But Ken and Frank have since reconciled. Um, Bob got really sick. He passed away, I think, in 2010. And, and before that, Ken and Frank, they or they all kind of, reconciled and you know again there's a lot out there about all of that and i think they're okay today um but you know again i it, just reading the article on a potential fight between the two got me really excited the marketing of the fight which is i love that uh especially for that time period I, it sounds like it would have been really amazing and i definitely would have paid to watch it so it's it, in some ways it's disappointing that the two never fought but you know, maybe it's for the best. Maybe it would have been a, a terrible fight. Maybe it would have caused more issues. I mean, more often than not, I feel like guys come together after a blood feud type fight. But uh, yeah, so I'm leaning more towards disappointing, you know, that it never happened. Yeah, I think I, I, I disagree just a little. I don't really disagree. I just have a different opinion in that. I don't know. I don't know that I would want to see it. To me, it just feels wrong and I would be torn uh, as to who to root for, who, who to cheer for. I'd probably feel bad that they're doing damage to each other and I could kind of see the fight being a bit of a dance. Maybe, uh, you know, both of them maybe not really wanting to pull the trigger hundred percent when they're in there because of the bond that they do share, even if they weren't getting along much at this time. Um, I don't know. It would have, I've obviously would have watched, but it would have been different than watching a grudge match between two people who did not grow up together and who were not related. Um, 
I don't know. Frank probably would have won at this point in time for all the reasons you said. Um, Ken was definitely taking one too many steel chair shots to the head and was past his prime as an MMA fighter, even back then. And, you know, he didn't fight not that long ago. Yeah, no, I, I, I think Frank would have would have beat him pretty easily. I think just Frank overall was a was a more talented fighter, a better athlete, and Frank had I think progressed more than than Ken. I mean, Frank or Ken was a great submission fighter, obviously could wrestle, but he was never really a great striker. And Frank, especially in his fight with Baroni, and and really even even in the fight that we're going to discuss on this uh, for this event with 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 Kong, despite how it went. Uh, Frank showed some really good stand-up in, in this fight, too. So I, I, I think Frank would have destroyed Ken, to be honest with you, and then Ken would have popped for steroids afterwards anyway. So um, who, who knows? But I I think Frank would have won. And I, I definitely see your point. But, man, you just can't get – you can't get more personal than brothers fighting. And so I think it would have been pretty amazing to see. And like I said, I, I, I'm a little bit bummed that it never happened. But anyways, all right, well, let's get into what was going on in the UFC uh, during this time. The no changes uh, since the last Strike Force event as far as UFC champions goes. BJ Penn still the lightweight champion after submitting Joe Daddy Stevenson at UFC 80 in January of 08. GSP still the interim welterweight champion after beating Matt Hughes at UFC 79 uh, in December of 2007. He would be facing Matt Sarah soon to unify the titles. Anderson Silva, as we've discussed, he's the reigning middleweight champion, I think, for the entire run of Strike Force, if I remember correctly. So we won't be if if it does change, it's not going to be for a while. I, you know, as I say, I think that's not true because I feel like he lost the title in uh, 2012, if I remember correctly. Do you do you remember off the top of your head? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he he held it all the way up until Strikeforce ended. I don't have the exact time dates in my head, but I think so. Yeah, I just I just quickly looked it up, and yeah, he lost the title to Weidman in July of 2013. So I th- I don't know the exact day that Strikeforce closed its doors, except that it was in 2013. So I yeah, I think I think Anderson's the the reigning middleweight champion. Which how insane is that that somebody held the rec held the title for seven years? I mean, how how crazy is that? So. Yeah, uh, much respect to to Anderson <laughs> on that. Uh, Quentin Rampage Jackson still the light heavyweight champ, and Minotaro Nogueira still the interim heavyweight champion after beating Tim Sylvia via third-round guillotine at UFC 81 in February. So the closest UFC event for this time was, uh, was UFC Fight Night Florian versus Lozon, which took place April 2nd, 2008, a few days after this Strike Force event, it was held in Broomfield, Colorado, and it drew 6,742 fans for a gate of just over $750,000. Very packed card in the opening bout. Anthony Rumble Johnson KO'd Tom Spear in only 51 seconds in a welterweight bout. I, I had to actually like look up, make, make sure this is that Anthony Johnson. Um, yeah, dude, do you re- Josh, do you remember that he actually fought <laughs> As a welterweight, I mean, like That's the guy's swole, like beyond, like he's coming well, back as a heavyweight. The guy used to fight at welterweight. Yeah, that's insane. I mean, I do remember he had a lot of weight cutting issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, yeah. I remember he missed weight a bunch of times. <laughs> but yeah, can you imagine heavyweight power in the welterweight division? Oh my god, I mean, that's, that's just ridiculous. crazy. Especially yeah. this guy. He's not a lightweight as a heavyweight. No. I mean, he's a killer. No. No, this wasn't a guy that would be, you know, vacillating between like lightweight and and welterweight. Got like guys like Diaz. I mean, dude, this is this is Rumble in the same weight class as Nate Diaz. Like, 
I mean, come on. Like, that's just, that's crazy. So, yeah, anyways. Uh, also on the undercard, former are you Are you envisioning Rumble hitting Nate Diaz? Are, are no, you? no. I Actually, <laughs> I was trying to think of what he looked like as a welterweight. Like, I'm going to have to look up what he looked like as a welterweight because that is just insane. Um, but also on the undercard, former Strikeforce, Strikeforce lightweight champ Clay Guida got a TKO win over Sammy Chavo. On the main card, fellow Strikeforce uh, vet James the Sandman Irvin got one of the biggest wins of his career when he used a Superman punch and follow-up strikes to TKO Houston Alexander at only eight seconds of the first round. That is definitely worth looking up. In addition, uh, the aforementioned Nate Diaz submitted Kurt Pellegrino, Tiago Alves, TKO'd Caro uh, Parisian, Gray Maynard swept the scorecards against Frankie Edgar. That's right. Gray Maynard beat Frankie Edgar. And I believe that was the start of like a trilogy of fights between the three of them. And then in the main event, Kenny Florian stopped Joe Lozon with punches in the second round. All right. The time has arrived. We are at Shamrock versus Lee. Again, this was a co-promoted affair between Strikeforce and Elite XC and would take place at the HP Pavilion in San Jose, California on March 29th, 2008. The event was a huge success financially, drawing 16,326 uh, fans for a 326 fans for a live gate of $1,117,855. So this was a near sellout. The biggest event strike force had put on, uh, as far as their, uh, you know, who they drew them, the amount of fans that they drew, this was the biggest event since their inception. Um, their, or their very first event, excuse me, Shamrock versus Gracie two years prior. So, you, Scott Coker, Frank Shamrock, and Kung Lee, they, they had delivered once again. So big, 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 big deal here. Shamrock versus Lee would feature Mora Ronaldo, the fight professor Stephen Quadras, and Bill, uh, Bill Goldberg on commentary. Unfortunately, UFC Fight Pass has the event without the commentary, and I could not find it elsewhere. You can find the main event on YouTube with the commentary, but I was very disappointed that I couldn't hear uh, hear them throughout the event. I really, I think Stephen Quadros is a very underrated commentator. I'm a big fan of his and hearing him alongside Mauro was, I would have liked to have heard that. Uh, and I, I tried to find, I could not find it elsewhere. So pretty disappointing. And, and I wonder why the UFC doesn't have the, have the commentary up on this event. I'm sure Dana White has some grudge against Mauro Ranallo or Quadros or Goldberg, or probably all three. Um, it, it may be something as personal as that, that he did not want them. I don't know if they're in other cards, but maybe it's Mauro. You know, the greatest irony ever and when it comes to broadcasting and MMA is that, in my opinion, the greatest MMA announcer of all time, Never called a fight for the most successful MMA promotion of all time. Yeah. And that's Mauro Ronaldo, you know? I mean, Mauro is incredible. I mean, I guess there's some people who are like, maybe he's a little bit over the top or cliched with some of his calls, but I don't think so. He matches that. He's not all gimmick. He matches that with a really good understanding of the sport. Um, and, you know, he here's a guy who's not good enough technically or whatever. UFC doesn't want him. He's called Conor McGregor versus Floyd Mayweather, the biggest boxing match in terms of pay-per-view buys of all time. So, um, I, that, let, let me jump in there real. Yeah, let me yeah. jump in there real quick. And on our most uh, recent bonus episode, we talked with Boss Rutten. Fans, if you have not already, make sure you download it. it was a great. I mean, Boss is fantastic, so it's it's definitely worth a listen. But we, I asked him who he thinks the greatest of all time is, and he's worked with. I probably all three of the these guys. I don't know for sure that he worked with Goldberg, but I obviously know that he worked with Morrow and Quadros quite extensively, and he's friends with both of them. And he said, at the risk of you know, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but he doesn't want to offend uh, 
he he didn't want to offend Quadros, and so he didn't suggest Morrow to replace him when when Pride decided they wanted to move away from the fight professor. But he did end up suggesting Morrow eventually, and he he says Morrow is the greatest combat sports com, you know, commentator of all time, and I 100% agree. I'm a huge fan of Morrow, and I get that people think he's over the top, but the guy puts in an incredible amount of work, and I I think he's I think he's great. He's amazing, and he contributed to the show. And then we got Goldberg. They brought in that wrestling guy. He was from Elite XC, and he was um, you know for the intro. You know he talked about how Frank Shamrock basically sold out the house because he knows how to cut a promo. And he told people, hey, uh, this is from the the YouTube stream where you can hear the broadcast. He said, hey, young MMA fighters, pay attention. Learn from Frank Shamrock because you need to learn how to promote yourself. And I think in 2008, that's that's pretty cutting edge of a comment. Yeah. And he's, and he's spot on. He's yep. 100% spot on. We talked about, again, go back in the archives, listeners, if you haven't already, and, and hear my talk with Frank, and he talks about that. So definitely worth it. But let's get to the event itself. We're going to kind of quickly go over the undercard. Not not a ton to jump into here, but definitely a couple of fights we want to spotlight. Uh, Jesse, Jesse Jones defeated Jesse Gillespie via TKO, uh, via punches at 35 seconds of the first round. Pretty Pretty quick one. Yeah, not much of a fight, and you know Gillespie was all jacked up and ready to go, and then he kind of did nothing once the fight started. He turned his back and was like, "Am I going to lose by submission or get KO'd?" And and he got KO'd. So uh, a lot of a lot of short, quick finishes on this show. Yeah, yeah, some some exciting fights, and this wasn't the most aesthetically pleasing one. And <laughs> two young guys, and you know, didn't don't hear a lot. Uh, from them and during their careers uh in the next fight in a and by the way that was a catch weight bout at 180 pounds uh at a 135 pounds darren uyanoyama defeated anthony ant dog figueroa via submission coming way of by way of guillotine at 127 of the first round i saw uh former strike force and current bellator matchmaker rich chow in the crowd for that one i believe um, I think he was matchmaking for Elite XC at that point. Uh, but two local guys for this one. The crowd was really into into it. U- Uyen Oyama gets a quick takedown, works a choke from the top. Figueroa ends up on top but is trapped and has to tap uh, to the guillotine. Nice job for Darren. I, I thought it was a, a good win for him. Uh, then in a welterweight fight, Tiki Gosen defeated Luke Stewart via unanimous decision. This was a this was a big fight on the undercard. So there was uh, as there were starting to be some whispers of a future Strikeforce welterweight title bout for Stewart. There was no welterweight title in the promotion at this point, uh, but Stewart was five and zero in Strikeforce, the same as Kung Lee. So kind of made sense that he might be one of the challengers for that title uh, if and when they did did get it going. In a pre-fight interview with Weekly MMA Weekly. Stewart said he was looking forward to testing out a stand-up against Tiki, who he respected but felt he could do well on uh, the feet against. Tiki was a longtime MMA event. A lot of early UFC fans would recognize him. He was one of just a handful of fighters that was actually managed by Dana White before uh, White got involved with the UFC. So interesting note there. He was also an original member of Tito Ortiz's Team Punishment. Not a big star, but but likely he was going to be a tough test for Stewart. Uh, so let's get into the fight. Elite XC Gary Shaw, uh, Elite XC head Gary Shaw was at cage side. Lots of clinching in the first. Uh, Tiki did did not want to go to the ground with Luke, even when he had top position. Also, <laughs> I don't know if you saw this, Josh, but I noticed Larry Flint's Hustler Club was one of Stewart's sponsors on his shorts. Did you did you catch that while you were watching this? <laughs> um, no, I did not see that. No. Not 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 quite condomdepot.com, but but you know. <laughs> 
not not exactly a top flight, you know, sponsor, but you got to do what you got to do. Hey, um, and we just talk. These fighters need to make money whatever way they can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyways, uh, more stand-up in the second round. Both fighters land some good shots with Tiki getting uh, cut pretty good over his right eye. In fact, it was deep enough for the cut to for the doc to take a look. Stewart eventually uh, got a takedown. But time ran out. The final round was Stewart trying to get the fight to the ground with Gosen, avoiding it. And it must have been enough as Tiki got the unanimous decision win. I didn't really agree with that. I felt like uh, Luke was more of the aggressor, but you know that's how it goes sometimes. Definitely a um, definitely a back and forth fight, and, and definitely a close fight. Yeah, it was it was an okay fight. I, it was a little slow at times, a little exciting at times. It was hard to pick a a clear winner. Uh, to me, I thought it could have gone either way. I think. Tiki did just enough to win. And Stewart has a way of fighting where he doesn't look, um, you know, we're going to talk about Drew Fickett in a second, but he doesn't look like he's happy to be in there. And I think that plays with the judges. Like he always looks sort of stressed and uh, that might've, might've made the difference here with the judges. Yeah. I, I mean, that makes as much sense as anything. And I, I agree with you. He doesn't seem to look like he's having a great time, but, and, and yeah, I guess that can, uh, I think that can definitely affect things, but uh, for whatever, you know, whatever your view is, uh, Stewart didn't get the win. Tiki did, and he would fight one more time in his MMA career. He beat Strikeforce vet Brian Warren to end his career at 10 and 8. He's really found more success as a as a manager and a coach. He's worked with fighters like Rampage Jackson, Michael Bisping, BJ Penn, and a bunch of others, and he's still involved uh, in the sport even today. Um, but Stewart had suffered his first loss, which kind of slowed his hype train some. Um, but he'd be back in strike force before end of year, so we'll be discussing him more uh, as we as we go along there. Uh, then in the next bout, in a 170-pound bout, Drew Fickett defeated Jay Sook Lim via submission, coming by way of guillotine at 114 of the first round. Uh, but but uh, a big a big win for Drew. Yeah, uh, Fickett came in really pumped, really excited. He, he, you know, by comparison to to uh, Stewart, we were just talking about. I mean, he was happy. He was animated. He looked like Mr. Kennedy in there. I mean, he was just the facial Mr. expression. <laughs> exactly. <Kennedy! laughs> uh, yes. Don't ever, uh, don't ever injure Randy or don't ever piss off Randy Orton in the ring. Otherwise, you'll <laughs> be done forever. Because um, then you become Mister Anderson. <laughs> Doesn't have quite that's the same right. ring to it. <laughs> exactly. And you're no longer Vince McMahon's son either. Yeah. Just like that. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> Um, but, um, you know, Fickett had a really cool, cool look, uh, you know, it's the same hairline as Mr. Kennedy. Uh, he was ready to go. So, I mean, I kind of got excited at the beginning of this fight just by watching him. Yeah, it definitely. I mean, Fickett was at really the peak of his powers and his career at this point. He was an amazing 32 and five coming into the fight, had multiple UFC fights, had wins over guys like Kenny Florian, Josh Koscheck and Josh Neer, who I think was pretty underrated. Uh, it made sense for him to be scheduled to fight Jake Shields for the the Elite XC belt. Lim was fourteen and four, but he just didn't have a lot of recognizable names on his record, and and I to me he seemed to be kind of being served up 
uh, originally supposed to fight Nick Diaz, uh, and now he's you know kind of being fed to, to Drew Fickett. But uh, jumping into the fight itself, after trading some punches and feeling things out, Fickett shot in for a takedown, which Lim defended pretty well. Fickett, however, pulled back and flipped the, the Korean over, landing on top, which was very, very smooth. I really liked that move. From there, Lim left his head unprotected, and the master of the guillotine grabbed the, the arm inversion and even jumped up and wrapped his legs. He knew that he had it, and Lim tapped out. Very nice showing for, for Drew Fickett. I just remember seeing uh, Lim's spine, <laughs> like like just so contorted and twisted, you know, at the top of his neck. Uh, it was uh, a fight that seemed to be over before it started. Uh, it's it's like Lim went out there and whiffed on four pitches, you know, he, he, and he swung at some bad ones. Uh, he didn't look like he was ready. It felt like he needed like a little more time to warm up and get ready for this fight. Uh, he did catch Fickett, I think, with it, like a right hand because Fickett had a little bit of blood on him uh, before uh, the tap out. Um, but I, I felt like if Lim could have restarted the fight, in an hour, it would have been an entirely different fight. But he just caught. You see the just, fighter coming in, be like, "Hey guys, can I push this back like an hour? I just feel like I'll be more ready." <laughs> hey, it works for me in this podcast. Come on. <laughs> uh, uh, but I just, I just sort of felt like he just got beat. And he wasn't even ready to go yet. And that's probably because Fickett was just moving twice as fast as he was. He may have psyched him out in the hexagon at the beginning. But um, that, that was what I was struck by. It was like, wow, fight's over. I didn't even really start it yet. Yeah, I mean, Fickett seemed to have a game plan and seemed to know what he was going after and just and just did it and he executed and, and that was it. But after the fight, Goldberg interviewed Fickett in, in, the, in the cage and then he brought in Jake Shields and Fickett was trying to kind of clown around a bit and just, you know, acting like he was, you know, being serious about it. But Shields was all business saying they'd be throwing down in Hawaii on June 14th. Uh, it was actually, I, I thought it was actually a pretty good buildup, like a, you know, a smart marketing move. And um, Shields kind of, you know, held up his end and Fickett, you know, kind of held up his, I, I just, I thought it was a good little interaction. It made me want to see that fight. Yeah. I'm always happy when they have these standoffs and nobody's wearing a mask. It's very, you know, I, are you talking about the Tito Justin McCulley thing? <laughs> yes, you were there. I right? was there. I was there that night. That was one of the weirdest things because I was like, okay. And for fans that are listening, I don't know what I'm talking about. This was in Bellator when uh, Stephen Bonner and Tito Ortiz were doing their like pro wrestling feud in, in the confines of Bellator. And uh, Stephen Bonner brought in Justin McCulley, who was a former UFC fighter that used to train with Tito and like had him wear a mask in the ring and then reveal himself. And it was supposed to like shock Tito that, Hey, I've got this guy in my corner and he's going to tell me all your secrets and tell me how to beat you. It was, it was <laughs> such a pro wrestling thing that just did not come off well at all. Because number one, most of the MMA fans there, Justin McCauley was, I mean, like in the mid two thousands around the time we're talking about now. So no one knows who he is today outside of the really hardcore fans. So yeah, that God, that was just such a brutal, like, what? And Tito, like he gave Tito more reason to make fun of Bonner anyways. But yes, <laughs> I, I think it's great when they bring guys in, if it goes well, like I think, I, and I'm sorry, I'm cutting you off here, but I go back to Josh Thompson and Gilbert getting in there and there was no, you know, really nothing to it. It was just like, yeah, we're going to fight and man, we're going to put on a good show for the fans and nobody, you know, at least Shields was trying to be like, you know, dude, you're going to get whooped, you know, and, and Fickett's kind of messing around, playing around. I, I thought Shields kind of made it because 
he did make it seem like this is going to be a fight between the two of us. And, and instead of like, yeah, I'm good. You're good. And we're going to see who's the best. I just have one little pet peeve here. I did like the fact that they were cutting a promo to build to the next fight, to build to a future show. Jake Shields, no promo skills at all. Um, yeah, not really his he, forte. He's great jujitsu. Obviously, I was rooting for him to beat GSP when they had that big fight in Canada. Um, I wanted the Strike Force guy to beat the UFC guy. But Jake just has trouble getting the words out of his mouth as Gorilla Monsoon would say. Was it Gorilla Monsoon would say, take the toilet paper out of your mouth when uh, oh. one of these guys was trying to cut a promo? I don't and, think uh, that's Gorilla. I don't remember. I've, I don't think I've ever heard that before. <laughs> I'm going to find the clip and send it to you. And Gorilla okay, will not. Please do. Gorilla's family will get no residuals when I, when I look <laughs> for the clip either. Uh, but I think that, uh, yeah, Jake's great. I love Jake Shields. But I just was struck by the fact that he lost this promo battle. He's like, yeah, I'm going to kick your ass. Like, okay, well, cool. <laughs> we're planning on having he, – he has agreed to come on the show. We're planning to have him on eventually, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that. But I'll, I'll be nicer. Then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Lim, Lim was one and done with Strike Force. only fought a few more times in MMA, ending his career at 17-6 and six in 2013. Fickett has had a very up-and-down career since this bout, which was his only in Strike Force. The, the fight with Jake Shields never happened. I don't even know. I couldn't find a, 2000, a June 14th. 2008 event in in Hawaii like I, I didn't dig into that super well but neither of neither Shields nor Fickett fought on any card in, on June 14 2008 in Hawaii so for I don't know what they were talking about and what happened there uh, but Fickett has lost more than he's won last competed in 2014 I do consider him still active yet because he had a bout canceled earlier this year because of COVID uh, I actually worked with Fickett a little bit uh, he, he fought for an event or two that I helped promote back in the day bit flaky he was known for that but uh but he showed up i never had any issues and he showed up for his media interviews and if i remember correctly super talented guy obviously super talented but really known for being pretty inconsistent in and out of the cage and unfortunately i I don't know that he ever really reached his his full potential all right, next, uh, next uh, fight that we've got is a catchweight bout of, at 162 pounds. Billy Evangelista defeated Marlon Sims via KO at 39 seconds of the third round. Evangelista was 5-0 and coming into this one, which included two wins in strike force. Sims was a veteran of the Ultimate Fighter, having been choked up by Wat, Matt, Wat Mywin. Matt Wyman on the show, easy for me to say, and he held a 3-2 and record. Uh, first two rounds were all Evangelista. He got takedowns and worked them. Early in the third, the two fighters were clinched when Evangelista landed Ended a, a, a few successive right hand uppercuts that just put Sims lights out. Didn't look all that great from the camera angle from behind, but definitely it put uh, put Sims to sleep. And Evangelista would be back in Strike Force again soon, while Sims would only fight one more time in MMA before calling it quits with a three and four uh, record. All right, we've arrived at the main card. The first bout on the main card, Joey Villasenor defeated Ryan Jensen via KO punch at 4.45 of the first round. Jensen was an 11-year MMA veteran at this point, but he was coming off two straight submission losses in the UFC to Talis Leitas and Damian Maya, respectively. But he still held an 11-3 record with wins over Travis Fulton and Curtis Stout. Villasenor, for his part, had rebounded from his strike force loss to Ninja Hua in the inaugural Elite XC middleweight title fight at Shamrock versus Hua by beating Ricky Fukuda via split decision. So he'd gotten back in, in, in the win column. 
All right, so as far as the action goes, Jeff Sherwood, the, the SureDog OG, uh, was at cage side shooting photos, as was Tracy Lee, so it was good to see them. Good fight here between two very solid vets. Senor gets a takedown from the clinch early on, but wasn't able to do a whole lot with it. Once the fight is back on the feet, Senor seats Jensen with a punch, though Jensen answers with some good punches of his own. And then with 15 seconds left in the first, Senor lands a right hand that simply puts Jensen's lights out. I mean, it was... A really nice right hand. He jabbed twice with the left and then threw the overhand right that landed flush on Jensen's jaw, and it was good night, Irene. Big KO for Villasenor. Uh, I thought it was I, – I liked it. It was kind of a little little awkward looking, but I, I thought it was good. Josh, did you have any, any thoughts on that? The biggest reaction I had was, yes, it was a good punch, but the way that Jensen fell, I mean, it was like, oh, my goodness, you just got hit by Francis Nagao or something like that. Like, I mean, he just collapsed like he was yeah. dead. And I just – you don't see those kind of knockouts with uh, guys at this weight level. So that was what struck me was like, damn, he hit you right on the button. Wherever your button is, he found yeah, it. He found it. Yeah, no, actually, I agree with you. I, I – I did notice that that he just kind of folded up and collapsed. So it was, it was a good punch, but I, you know, it wasn't. I definitely seen worse and seen guys, you know, stand back from that. However, I always try to temper that with I'm not a fighter, so I've never been hit like that. So I don't know what it feels like, but uh, yeah, I, I <laughs> he definitely caught him uh, enough to really, you know, sleep him. So for sure, he was um, out before he hit the mat. That for was sure, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But it's definitely worth taking a look at. Uh, if you have UFC Fight Pass, you can find this event on there. Uh, but Villasenor would be back in Strike Force before too long while Jensen was done with the promotion. He later had a six-fight run with the UFC, actually, ended his career in 2015 on a six-fight win streak with a 21-8 and record. Those six fights, you know, six-fight run UFC, six-fight, uh, streak to end his career. They were not, they, they did not overlap. I'll just, we'll just put it that way. But, um, but yeah, anyways, and then we get into a fight between Wayne Cole and Mike Kyle. Uh, Cole defeated Kyle via submission coming by way of armbar at 45 seconds of the first round. This was a quick one. Uh, Cole was 11 and seven coming in. He had lost twice in the IFL. Those were his biggest appearances at this point. So not really a big name fighter. We've discussed Mike Kyle a bit before. He is something of an enigma in MMA. He's as I consider him to be a very talented fighter. He has size and strength and has a good look and all that. He had wins over James Irvin and Tsuyoshi Kosaka. Yet Kyle, an AKA product, had a reputa reputation as a dirty fighter, which is partially why he's been, as we you know, as we go into this card, he had been inactive for almost two years prior to this bout. Uh, he had fought previously for Strikeforce. If you remember, he drew with Christoph uh, Shoshinsky, and that bout had been uh, ruled a draw because Kyle had injured Shoshinsky's eye inadvertently with a, a, a with a poke, and Shoshinsky couldn't re re recover in time, and so they called it a draw. But Kyle had competed in the WEC, and one, and this is it's one of the dirtiest things I've ever seen in MMA. Kyle soccer soccer kicked Brian Olson in the face while he was on his knees, which is enough for disqualification right there. Kyle then jumps on him and keeps punching the seemingly unconscious Olson while the ref tried to pry him off. Uh, it was pretty egregious, and and Kyle was suspended for a year because of it, and now he's back looking to right the ship in his home area of San Jose, and and Josh. Uh, have you, have you seen that, that before? Do you know what I'm talking about? You, it's, yeah. it's worth looking up if you have, if you haven't. 
No, I remember that. And I remember turning on Kyle after that and, and just wanting him to lose every time because of it. And I mean, I think he had some other things that yeah, he questionable bit, he bit fights. West yeah. Sims. He bit yeah. West Sims on the peck. And I think it was UFC 47. We've talked about that before. And as he had him in a, uh, in a guillotine or Kyle, I'm sorry, Sims had Kyle in a guillotine and, and Kyle bit him on the peck. And you, I remember you can see Sims pointing to his chest, pointing to the bite marks as like the, as the referee is about to lift Kyle's hand. And, and so, yeah, he, this guy, he had done this kind of stuff more than once. And it reminded me, uh, one of my favorite pride fighters, um, was Takanori Gomi. I loved watching Gomi fight. You ever see Gomi fight? You seen the, uh, was it a Gogo Plata or no? I think it was a Gogo Plata that yeah. Diaz got on him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he fought. I want to say it was Luis Pal- Luis Firmino, if I remember correctly, in Pride, and he put him to sleep. Um, I don't remember. I think I don't remember if it was a punch or a kick, but he puts him to sleep and then jumps on him. And the, it was actually it was almost a mirror image of what we're talking about here, where the ref jumps on him and grabs him around the waist and is pulling him. Like literally, and 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 Gomi's like trying to shove him off him to get back and keep punching him, and like shoot, like uh, uh, Firmino was part of shootbox, and so the shootbox guys are jumping in, and I mean it was a pretty crazy scene, and it was that was really bad, and it was just like this one, and I I hate that kind of stuff because that is not that's just not cool. I mean I understand you're running on adrenaline and all that stuff, but you got to be a professional, and you you can't lose your cool like that. Like you can't. You just can't do that kind of stuff. And, and so Kyle, yeah, I, which is ironic. Cause I kind of forgave, I forgave Gomi. I wanted to still see him fight. And meanwhile, Kyle, yeah, kind of like you, I just wasn't a fan of his because of this kind of stuff. So, but anyways, um, he kind of paid for it in this fight. He, he was out for a year and then hadn't fought other than that or hadn't, he had, he did have a, a bout canceled, uh, after his suspension was up. But so this was his first time in almost two years. And for all Cole, uh, Wayne Cole's pre-fight interview talk about this being a street fight that he gets paid for, it really looked like a true MMA fight in that Cole grabbed a clinch very, very quickly that he turned into a takedown. And from there, he isolated Kyle's left arm, uh, leaped up and grabbed his, wrapped his legs around it. He lifted the hips and that was it. Kyle had to tap. And so he got the arm bar really quickly. Goldberg came into the, the cage briefly to shake Cole's hand and Elite XC exec Jeremy Lappin gave uh, gave Cole a lead, an Elite XC hat to wear. Uh, and so I, I think this might've been the elite XC versus uh strike force fight, or it was one of the elite XC fights, but Cole would not be back in strike force. He ended his career in 2015 on a thir- 13 fight losing streak, closing things out at 16 and 25. Kyle would be back in strike force the following year in 2009. Yeah. Cole went all round to Rousey on Kyle. It was really cool to see. Uh, it, it's cool to see. It's impressive. The straight arm bar, among heavyweights it's you know you don't see that that much and kyle was clearly dejected after he tapped out he was he was he was mad at himself he was mad that it ended early you know maybe he didn't have time to to bite anybody you know he he was (laughs) he could he he could (laughs) although i mean you gotta say like when you put on when you wrap your legs you got your legs you know near near the mouth so kyle could have bit him on the calf or something but then then you know but in that case you just break the guy's arm right like you know you don't yeah yeah oh man dude i'm if you bite my leg i am pulling back as hard as i can and i'm not stopping so yeah yeah so so um it's you know i think for kyle he just he got his 
butt kicked really quick and he was pissed off and the fight was over. And so that happens sometimes, but I, I was impressed with Cole. I'm surprised he ended his career like that because in this fight, he looked tremendous. Yeah. He made a good showing here, but definitely didn't continue that and, and didn't go the way that Kyle wanted. You could de- clearly see how dejected he was. So, I mean, man, you're out for two years and, and then you come back and you lose, you know, <laughs> you lose in, in, uh, 45 seconds of the first round. I mean, yeah, anybody would be disappointed, but all right, moving, moving on a lightweight title fight. Gilbert Melendez defeated Gabe Lemley via TKO coming by way of punches at 218 of the second round. Lemley was an interesting choice to replace Thompson. I don't know all the ins and outs of, you know, maybe he just happened to be available, but uh, he was 11, 11 and six, but the only name fighter he'd beaten was Clay Guida back in 2004. Uh, you know, you got to assume that Scott Coker just didn't want to risk jeopardizing the Melendez Thompson title bout. Uh, Gilbert was coming off his first ever loss, though, a decision loss to Mitsuhiro Ishida at Yaranoka on New Year's Eve. He'd been looking to, you know, of course, be looking to rebound here, get a win and set up that title fight finally with with Josh Thompson. I, I, I got to say, um, if your last name is Lemley and you're an MMA fighter, I feel like, you know, you got to change your name. What would yeah. Vince, what last name would Vince McMahon give Gabe Lemley, if he were in the WWE. Uh, well, he would change it to Lamely and making make him a jobber, <laughs> make him an enhancement guy. Like, uh, who is the chinless guy? Uh, James. Um, oh man, the guy with the blonde hair that like got the fluke win over uh, AJ Styles. Oh, James, James Ellsworth. Yeah, James yeah. Ellsworth. Yeah. Yeah. I, I you, you I think you end up kind of making him like that. Like that. That's that's the gimmick he would. Or get. he he would have been Shorty G. Yeah. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Or something like that. <laughs> Uh, but anyways, jumping into the fight itself, great early takedown from the champ. And, and the first round was, was all him just relentless, trying to improve position, throw ground, ground strike strikes. It was classic Gilbert Melendez, uh, towards the end of the first round, uh, he came close to finishing Lemley. Actually, he was pretty busted up in the face. He looked pretty bad going back to his corner once the bell rang. And then in the second Lemley to his credit, he kept coming forward, but he was eating a lot of strikes. Uh, Melendez gets another takedown, more relentless punches on the mat, and Herb Dean was forced to step in and wave it off. Very one-sided fight for the champion. I mean, it just wasn't even just wasn't even close, and uh, it was pretty much what you expected. And again, if you're Scott Coker, it's what you wanted. If you're Josh Thompson, it's what you wanted because you wanted to see that. You know, everybody wanted to see that that fight between the two of them. Uh, but Lemley would fight four more times in MMA. None of them in strike force. He lost to Dean Thomas in 2009 to end his career at 13 and nine. As for Melendez fans would, would finally get the long awaited title fight between him and Thompson less than three months later. And I'm very much looking forward to covering that one. Uh, but yeah, I thought it was a big win for Gilbert and uh, not a big win, but it was an expected win, but he made a good showing. I thought, like I said, vintage Melendez. Yeah. Melendez is so good at the stand up, and he's so good at uh, boxing and throwing punches and being scrappy. And so in this fight, it was amazing to watch him turn into Jake Shields. Like he was just on top of this guy and he smothered him. He, I mean, he reminded me a little bit like Khabib Nurmagomedov. Like he was just like, damn, this guy's never going to escape. This fight is going to end with Gilbert on top beating the crap out of him. He was relentless. And so I sort of feel like this was the fight where Gilbert emerged as like, 
from the rising young star to the star. Uh, this the, his, his the quality of the opponent was not tremendous, but it was that confidence builder, and that's exactly how you should win when you take on this this caliber of a fighter. You should dominate. You should win that way, and and then it sets up for the Josh Thompson fight, and Melendez just came out of this just feeling like yeah. I am good and I can win. I think he jumped in stature a little bit. And this was the moment where he became the fighter that we would learn to know and love. Um, just a tremendous, dominant, relentless, pressure-packed performance uh, that he had. It, it was it was a cool, cool fight to watch if you're a Melendez fan. Yeah, and I, I mean, knowing that, um, you know, spoiler alert, that Gilbert does lose the title to Josh Thompson when they you know, when they do meet, uh, you know, I, I don't know obviously how much it, this helped or hurt him, but to me, you're coming off your very first pro loss. You need get a good, you know, get a good win where you make a good showing before you get back in there for the title. So I, to me, it, it was good for Gilbert to do this, but like I said, he ended up losing in the next bout, but you know, anyways, I, I agree with you. I think it was a really defining win for him as far as like his style goes. And I think we, again, you know, I don't want to start sounding like Michael Cole here and keep saying vintage, you know, uh, vintage, uh, Gilbert, but I, it definitely was. We see the big dog though. That's <laughs> vintage big dog. It's boss time. <laughs> yeah, we're, not, we're not doing, we're not doing that. All right. We are finally here. We are at the main event. I'm excited to talk about this. We're going to spend a little bit of time on this because it is such a worthy, worthy fight to dive into 185 pound title fight. Kung Lee defeated Frank Shamrock via TKO with a stoppage coming due to injury at the end of the third round. One of my all time favorite strike force fights. Uh, so I'm glad we get to dive into this. Frank had not competed since June of the previous year. If you remember correctly, uh, he had torn up his knee in training for that fight. So he'd been out rehabbing and recovering, but he'd beaten Phil Baroni in an all time classic. I got to say, you know, for all the damage that Frank told me that he did to his knee, I'm amazed that he was back in the cage I think this is nine months later, so that's kind of crazy. So either he's a freak of nature, which he is, or you know maybe it, the the injury wasn't as bad as it sounded. But but you know kind of crazy that he's back defending his title just nine months later. Uh, but Kung was five and zero as we mentioned earlier, coming off a main event win over Sammy Morgan. So this this was an opportunity for him to really step up in competition and win the title. And you know what he deliver. Well, you know as he walked to the hexagon, and this goes back to just the great commentary team but Mauro Ronaldo said he's a mixed martial arts rock star and where else but in America can a guy who escaped North Vietnam with his mother become a mixed martial arts rock star I mean <laughs> he is just like he's telling stories and that's what's amazing about Mauro Ronaldo you know and then later he says this is what dreams are made of and Kung Lee is living the American dream it's just so good. It's just you're watching this, you're like, damn, Moro Anello's the guy who's getting over here. He's so good. <laughs> um, you know, um, lots of Vietnamese flags in the audience. Uh, Quadros made a big deal about um, how Kung Lee was undefeated in Sancho kickboxing and MMA. He was building up this whole thing of like, yeah, this guy's got five fights in MMA, but he's never lost a fight like in any of the disciplines he's competed in. And then Shamrock came to the ring wearing a San Jose Sharks jersey and carrying yep. the belt up in the air like a pro wrestler in his right <laughs> hand. I mean, he looked like CM Punk 
I mean, he looked like this is a fixed fight and I'm going to go in there and just perform and I'm going to win. And like, he had like no stress on him at all. It was all showmanship. And that's, what's amazing. He just looked like I'm totally confident here, no matter what happens. And, uh, Goldberg totally marked out for, uh, Shamrock. He said, before there was a George St. Pierre, there was a Frank Shamrock. <laughs> Which, <laughs> you know, I, it's funny. <laughs> I'll bet you, I'll bet you Morrow, like Morrow, like had that in his notes and like wrote it down and then like, like gestured to Goldberg. You take this one. And like, <laughs> <laughs> let him say that. It's kind of like what you do with me, Phil. Sure. Sure. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I, it's, yeah, it was great. It was just, yeah, it was, it was, it was great. It was great. All right, let's, let's jump into the fight itself. Huge roar for Kung. But as I said earlier, more booze for Frank when they came out for sure, despite wearing the Sharks jersey, you know, Frank was the heel and it was, it, you know, here we go. The battle of San Jose for the strike force middleweight title. The crowd was almost completely in Kung's corner. Once they announced, you know, do the in cage announcements, Frank almost had universal booze. I mean, it was loud and I had, I had chills, you know, massive Kung lead chance early on. I mean, it was, it was awesome, but the bell rings Kung throws a, a, a few kicks. And you mentioned earlier, this was a pro wrestling crowd. It was. I mean, the crowd was raucous. It was just you got to check it out. You check it out on UFC Fight Pass or YouTube. I mean, it, it's worth it's worth a watch. But uh, Kung throws a couple of kicks to open things up, and, and but then and then he goes for a spinning back kick, and Frank moves in and grabs his waist, and Kung gets out of it, and the two the two of them kind of like look at each other and acknowledge what just happened. Which I I got to stop and you know, Josh, did you notice there's more even more gesturing in this fight? than there was for Shamrock Baroni. Like there was, I mean, the two were pretty much doing sign language to each other, like throughout the entire, did you notice that? Like how much of that was going on? It was so pro wrestling because with pro wrestling, you see them talking. They were talking to each other in this fight. I mean, there were, there were times when, uh, when, you know, Shamrock got his leg swept out and he's on the mat and he just sort of looks up at him and, um, yeah. Kung lets him stand up. Yeah. Or Shamrock yeah. asks him to come down. Kung, you're probably going to talk about this, but, you know, you know, they're just back and forth. And uh, there's so much gesturing. Frank, you know, at one point, did you're going to talk about this. I mean, yeah, he just, it was a conversation in that ring. And to me, what it showed was they knew they were there to be a defining point in Strikeforce history. And they had respect for each other, too. So I, I, that's what I took away from it was these guys could have been in the gym also. They were also just on this huge stage. Yeah, but they were telling a story. Like it was, you know, Frank's the master. Kung, not that not that they, you know, trained together or anything like that, but I, I believe they may have sparred at some point. But Frank was the guy that, like, he's the master, you know? And then Kung's the, the apprentice that's coming in or the challenger that's coming in. But you can see things begin to change as Kung gets... I've talked about it with the, the Baroni fight, that you could see Frank getting more confidence. I think you could see Kung getting more confidence as the fight wore on. And, they, and you know, they began to... But Frank continued to gesture. And, uh, you know, he was the first guy... I got to give it to Frank in the first round. He was the first MMA fighter to really bring the fight to Kung that wasn't... You know, with like Sammy Morgan, like Tony Frickland, you know, those guys were kind of hanging back and kind of waiting 
for Kung to do something. No, Frank was bringing the fight to him, scoring points with strikes, not allowing Lee to counter. And, you know, again, he when Kung went for one of his flashy spin kicks, Frank was right there. He trained for – it's clear he trained for that and rushed in and, and knocked Kung off balance. And then later on the round, it happens again. Kung goes for another spinning back kick, and once again, Frank steps in and capitalizes, shoves Kung to the ground. You just mentioned this and tried to tried to get on him, but Kung was able to get back up and – you know, we'd see if, if Kung would learn his lesson this time. The, the round ended shortly after, but such an entertaining first round. And right before the bell, Frank once again kind of calls his shot, and this time it doesn't happen, but he points at Kung and gives him the 90-night gesture that he'd given to Phil Baroni in their fight. And he was smiling broadly and looking extremely confident as the, the end of the first round uh, came. Yeah, you noted this, but Shamrock was the aggressor. If you watch the fight, he is coming forward most of the fight and he is actually backing Kung Lee up which is an entirely different posture for for Kung Lee and I think that it shows Frank is a legitimate badass like he is tough he knows he's walking into a buzzsaw but he's going to go after him he wasn't going to do this defensive fight and try to avoid it and when you do that you end up reinforcing the worst possible scenario the best defense is a good offense and so he was definitely trying to attack kung lee um i felt like shamrock missed a couple of opportunities he had lee down and against the cage in this first round and he let him back up and obviously he knows what to do in that cage, but if I'm in his corner, you know, I'm telling him, uh, you know, a knee, an elbow. He was within striking distance when he had him up against the cage and he backed out and he let it go back to a stand up. And uh, I think maybe that he was a bit too hesitant in that first round. And that was probably the best round he was going to have to win the fight. Although we would see later in Kung Lee's career that he would get tired. In the later rounds, uh, we're also talking about Frank Shamrock being 35. Kung was 35, but he's a, he was a young 35 as far as MMA goes. Like he, he was, he wasn't an old, he hadn't had a lot of time in that cage. So, so I think Frank probably missed it by just a hair in that first round. Yeah, definitely. This, this can definitely be a game of inches. And, and we may have seen that here, but. You know, as I mentioned, Frank kept gesturing to Kung. Oh, I was this close. I got you that time. There's one. There's another one, like when he would land a shot. And, you know, again, it was just very entertaining. Then early on in the second, he did it again. Uh, but but Kung answered w- with two kicks, and, and one of those knocked Frank's mouth guard, mouthpiece out. I mean, it, it was it was this cool kind of like like axe type kick and, and he got him. And now Kung was able to gesture and say, that's one for me. And that was a big moment. You know, Frank acknowledged it big moment that elicited a huge reaction from the crowd. So I love that. Uh, after some more striking Kung caught one of Frank's kicks and shoved him to the mat and he didn't follow up on the floor. Frank gestured like, come on down, bro. And, and Kung wasn't having it. Frank was like, all right, then and you could see on their faces, like this whole, you know, conversation, like you mentioned between the two of them and, uh, Frank, you know, Frank getting his kick caught and, and Kung shoving him like that. I mean, that was a huge confidence builder for, for confidence builder for Kung for sure. And, you know, but Frank was still looking good. The, the, the way he was bouncing around, darting in and out, I, you know, I, it was clear his knee was fully recovered. He was looking really strong, but Kung was starting to connect more and more with his kicks. And, and, you know, he landed a really nice one, two combo, which startled Frank who acknowledged the damage. Kung really came on strong in the second. I think he kind of, kind of put his stamp. You know, all right, this is this is going to be my fight. I I, I think it was uh, 
Kung was really starting to show that this was going to be his win. Yeah, props to Kung Lee for not going to the ground there with Frank. You know, it shows how very, smart. Very smart. Very smart. It, yeah. It's very easy to do the man thing and just be like, okay, I'm coming after you, you know. But that was, you know, would have been a dumb move because, uh, he, you know, that would be a position that he may not have been able to come out of. Uh, Frank slowed down a bit in the second round. Like you said, it became clear that that uh, Kung was emerging and uh, he was gaining more confidence. Uh, Frank was looking, you know, for a knockout, you know, he was standing straight up. Um, but, you know, he, he wasn't giving Kung Lee enough to worry about. Uh, he was very one dimensional. This was Frank trying to get inside, trying to get within range, trying to punch him. But Kung Lee, I don't think had a lot of worry about Frank trying to shoot for a takedown. Uh, Frank did throw some late kicks, but they were more sort of um, afterthoughts. They were not a part of his offense in a way where he was looking to set anything up. And I think Kung picked that picked up on that. And uh, I just think Kung Lee didn't have to worry about getting knocked out. I think he sort of felt like I have this fight. I'm gaining momentum. Frank is slowing down. And I feel like Frank kind of got old in this round, this second round. Uh, I, I think you make some good points there. I think it's I think it's fair. Uh, but but Kung was definitely the guy that was coming on stronger. Speaking of strong, Kimbo Slice saw him cage side for this one, so that was kind of cool to see. Uh, but no clowning around or gesturing for Frank in the third round. I mean, I think he realized that he was in trouble. Kung landed a really nice another one, nice one two combo followed up. A few seconds later with a high kick that uh, left a high left kick, or, sorry, left high kick. There we go. Uh, which Frank blocked, but but Frank immediately started shaking his right arm out and it was clearly hurting. Kung then did a kick punch combo I, I don't remember seeing before. It's definitely worth checking out. Threw a, a right high kick, kind of hooking it back towards Frank's head. Then as he spun away, he threw a back fist to the face, which didn't do a whole, a whole lot, but it looked really cool. I uh, then caught another shamrock kick. Then kicked his leg, other leg out from under him, walking away as he did, giving Frank plenty of time to get back up and soak in what just happened to him. Again, avoiding going to the mat. Kung was winning the fight hands down. Frank knew it. Shamrock did catch Kung with a very nice straight right, straight right and sensing that this might be his last chance, he followed up. But Kung weathered the storm, and with about 10 seconds left, Kung landed a left high kick to Frank's forearm again, and Frank was absolutely hurt. I mean, he was injured. It wasn't just hurt. He was injured, and there's a difference between the two. Kung swarmed, but the bell rang, and as Frank was helped into his, onto his stool, you can clearly hear him say, he broke my arm to the doctor, and, and they waved it off. This was a great round in MMA because – Frank was working it. You know, he was trying everything he could to get the knockout. Uh, you know, mad respect for Shamrock for taking so many of Kung Lee's kicks uh, right on the face. Like, you could see that. You know, he took so many. Obviously, he took many to the right arm as well. And uh, he didn't really back up. You know, he's he's got an incredible chin. I mean, there's there's a reason why up until this point he had never been knocked out. You know, he was Yeah, and he and he never was. He was never knocked out. He, how did that Diaz fight end? What was that was that a decision? Uh, no, I oh man, now he threw me for a loop. I don't I, I was there for that fight and I can't yeah. remember it. I know I know Diaz won, yeah. but I actually don't remember. I think it was a TKO finish. But keep talking okay, and I'll okay. look, I'll look it up as we're yeah, I mean, you're right. It was a TKO. I'm pretty sure Diaz, they just stepped in. But um, but Frank was just tough. And, and he, you know, he was fighting one of the most dangerous strikers in the business. Um, 
And he hurt him. Like this round, right before he got his arm broke, he hurt Kung. He landed a right hand. He backed him up. And Kung Lee has that thing about him. When he gets rattled, you know it. You can see it. His entire face becomes different. His body language changes. Kung Lee is so in control of most of the action in his fights that when he's not in control, you know it. And he was stunned by by Frank. It's just like, wow, Frank even had another chance right here. The problem was Frank was just too one-dimensional. All he could really do was go for the knockout. I don't know why he didn't try to shoot for something. Obviously, Kung Lee was a good wrestler. Maybe he was concerned about that. And he, you know, he didn't want to get submitted. But uh Frank was really close. And then we saw it right there. He got that kick. He blocked it. And uh, his arm was broken. And you knew if he were to come out for that next round, it was not going to last very long. But, I mean, I love this round. It, it was an amazing round. Yeah, it really was. I, I don't understand why maybe his knee was still bothering him. Although, like I said, he was moving like he had no issues. Didn't Wasn't wearing, you know, knee guards or uh, knee wraps or anything like that. I don't know why Frank never went for a takedown. I mean, he did say... I believe he said later that he, he thinks Kung like cracked his arm in the first round. And then like, he felt like bones separate like in the second and then the third round, you know, he just completely broke it. Um, so maybe he didn't feel like he could go for a takedown anymore at that point, but yeah, whatever happened there, Frank never went for a takedown. And I think that was to his detriment. I think that was, you know, think that obviously didn't work out well for him but a huge celebration in the cage afterwards Josh Thompson and Javier Mendez jump in there they're hugging Kung Kung was very very emotional both Coker and Gary Shaw came over to Kung and said you broke his arm and I think he had I think one of the officials thought like he was like like 50 you know like a stream of 50 people came over and said you broke his arm like yeah okay I got it um but Frank was laying on his back in the cage clearly in a lot of pain uh, but both fighters were interviewed afterwards in the cage. Kung was still very emotional, very, very happy. Frank gave Kung all the credit, classy display by both fighters after a really an all-time strike force classic. So really, really good stuff. Uh, we would not see Frank or Kung back in the strike force hexagon for quite a while. Frank would be out a year coming back to face Nick Diaz and what would be his final MMA bout, which by the way, Nick did win that via TKO. I did look that up via strikes, but my point was that Frank's never been knocked out. He was never, yeah. he was never knocked out. So, right. Uh, he was never as, Gabe Lemley for sure. Yes. There you go. Uh, as or or Ryan Jensen because I don't think Lemley was knocked out either. Oh, Jensen, Jensen was, sorry, yeah, Jensen, Jensen was yeah, knocked yeah. out. Yeah. Uh, as mentioned, the bout with Ken Shamrock would never materialize. Uh, Kung would actually end up relinquishing the middleweight title in favor of of his burgeoning movie career, so he wouldn't be back at Strike Force for a year and a half. So we're not going to be you know talking about them as far as inside the hexagon itself uh, for quite a while. But I, I did want to mention this: things like this seem to really hurt Strike Force early on. You have guys like Alistair Overeem and Kung win belts and then either vacate or not defend them. For for quite some time. Uh, roster depth was always an issue, I think, with them, depending on the division. You know, you have guys like Josh Thompson being replaced by a guy like Gabe Lemley. You know, just I think moves like that hurt Strike Force's credibility and having a guy like Kung who you've been building up and then leave the promotion basically for quite a while. 
because of movies. I, I, you know, I think that's, that's kind of tough, but uh, we do want to wrap things up here. Uh, we've been talking for, for quite a while. Total disclosed fighter payroll was $667,850. You mentioned Michael Fromovitz saying that both fighters would be paid in the six fig- figures, comfortably in the six figures. Kung Lee made $200,000 disclosed, while Frank Shamrock brought in $300,000. Drew Fickett got ten k while Jay Suklim got three k. Gilbert Melendez made fifty, while Joe Villasenor made thirty six, and Wayne Cole and Mike Kyle both got ten thousand each. You can find online you if you want. You can find the the full fighter payroll, but really a great event, very entertaining and very entertaining. One of my favorite events, especially that the the main event. Josh, uh, what did you think? Well, I thought it was a tremendous show. Um, it was all about the main event. The main event was incredible, and it delivered. Uh, and again, we said it over and over. It had that pro wrestling meets MMA feel. And when those two come together, it's it's really incredible. Like When you have the showmanship and presentation of pro wrestling, and you've got the legitimate sports combat and the great athletes competing, it's it's magical. Uh, what I was struck by was both guys were, were good guys. They were faces fighting in their hometown. Kung Lee definitely by the end, by the time the fight started, he had emerged as the more popular. But it was so nice to see these guys coming in there and taking each other on in San Jose. It was it was like this local show had become this national story. And a little bit of a backdrop, sort of the political reason why Kung Lee was so popular in San Jose. Uh, San Jose, California has 100,000 Vietnamese Americans, and it's the largest population of Vietnamese outside of Vietnam anywhere in the world. So, I mean, you know this, Phil, you're in the Bay Area. Um, you know, you live there for a while. Um, you know, it's it's very culturally strong with Vietnamese people. And so this fight was really about culture, too. It wasn't just two great MMA fighters. This was also a, a, a fight for Vietnamese people. And that's why they were so much behind Kung Lee. It was like Oscar de la Hoya fighting Fernando Vargas or Rafael Ruelas in Los Angeles, like, you know, with like a big Mexican uh, American presence. There, there was a, a an energy in that arena that was not just MMA fighter energy. Um, you know, Lee, he was a Vietnamese hero. Uh, to, to so many people. Um, and then there's Shamrock, this UFC icon, this guy who was the new face of Strike Force, who had been reborn, reinvented, and who was the face of this emerging promotion. And he was popular, but he was willing to play the, the heel, the bad guy against Kung Lee in order to promote this fight, right? Um, and, and, and Shamrock was a hundred percent ready to fight and prove himself as, hey, I'm going to cement my legacy here. Okay. I'm going to beat Kung Lee and I'm going to forever go down among this generation as one of the best MMA fighters ever. The great tragedy here is that Frank has been written out of the UFC history book. Uh, it would be like if somebody bought the entire archive of boxing, created a unified Hall of Fame and never mentioned somebody like Evander Holyfield. It's just nonsense that that Frank doesn't have any place in sort of the UFC lexicon is one of the early pioneers. It's one of the problems when people associate UFC with the sport. UFC is the most popular, financially successful form of the sport or company that practices the sport, but it is not the sport. 
So, you know, there was so much going on here. Frank wanting to cement his legacy, Kung Lee as this hero of the Vietnamese people. And it was all colliding in the, in the cage on this night. And the power of that live crowd, it was amazing. You know, and neither guy lost anything. Kung won and he actually, unfortunately went and made movies but had he fought twice in that year and a half who knows uh about what kind of mma popularity he would have had but he didn't lose anything he won he was a champion and he had this great reputation shamrock didn't lose much either i mean he went in there against kung lee and he fought his heart out and uh he got his arm broken in the process and he had to quit because it's a it's a it's a uh, legitimate competition and you we can't let guys go out there and fight with broken arms so so uh, I, you know shamrock came out of that looking okay looking okay um, this was the first uh strike force show that i covered live i had convinced the mercury news sports desk hey let me have those passes that micro framowitz and strike force are trying to give us so we can attend this event i mean can you imagine you got 15,000, 16,000 people in this arena and you got like five journalists? It's like, oh, my God, no wonder newspapers are dying. You know, it's like out of touch with this incredible aspect of what's happening in popular culture. Sat next to Dave Meltzer on this show. Yeah, and, Uncle uh, Dave. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I marked out a little bit for him because that was the first time I had met him. He was nice, you know. Sat next to him in press row, and uh, he's a he's a little guy, like like si <laughs> like not not like because he's ripped, but like yeah. you know height wise, he's kind of a little guy. Yeah, yeah, he definitely. You, know, you meet Dave Meltzer, you know. You meet, you know, he's definitely one of my. I was one of those guys who ordered his newsletter as a little kid, and you know, waited for it to come in the mail and read every word. And you see him, you're like, "Well, that's Dave Meltzer. He looks different than I sort of envisioned him to look," you know, in in real life. But anyway, I marked out for him. I was sat next to him, probably chatted way too much next to him that night. Uh, but I do remember that he. Uh, he, he was taking notes furiously on his keyboard and not even really looking up in between rounds. And he's like, is it over? And I was like, yeah, I think they, they stopped it, you know? And so that's, I have that memory, but, um, I don't think any energy for a strike force show was ever the same that there was just electricity in that building. Um, you know, when Fedor fought in that building, it was amazing. His entrance, it was like watching Nakamura and NXT or something. It's like the whole crowd is enamored by this incredible personality. But then when he tapped a Verdum, it was like somebody tipped over the wedding cake or totaled the new car. It was like, <laughs> no one, you know, just the whole life left the building. But with this show, even when it was over, people were just like, I just saw something incredible. Even the Frank Shamrock fans were like, this Kung Lee's a badass, you know, and it's probably a, a card where Dana White's like, damn, we better start paying attention to these guys. So, I mean, Strike Force would have tremendous moments going forward. And, uh, you know, Scott Smith and the great knockout surprises to come. But this show, I think this main event was was just about as close to perfect as you can get. It was a great moment, a great milestone for Strike Force, no doubt about that. And uh, I'm glad we got to cover it. Uh, I want to wrap things up quickly. We've gone longer than I, I envisioned we would, but 
Coming up on our next show, we're, we're going to be talking with the man himself, Kung Lee. Uh, we're, he's going to be coming on the show to talk about this fight. We delve into it and talk about, you know, how it went for him and his mindset. So that's a, that's a great conversation. That's going to be dropping as we record this this coming Monday. So stay tuned for that. After that, we'll get into the long-awaited title fight between champion Gilbert Melendez and challenger Josh Thompson. So that's going to be a great one, too. Uh, make sure that you are following us on social media at Inside the Hexagon Pod. You can find us on Twitter and on Instagram. Please rate and review the show. Greatly appreciate it. We got another new review uh, this past week, another five-star review on Apple Podcasts. So we appreciate that. Please, please do consider rating and reviewing the show. It helps others find us. Uh, you can reach me at phil at insidethehexagon.com. I would love to get your feedback. We've got some things in the works. Might be doing some some listener contests and different things like that. So uh, make sure you reach out. Make sure you follow. Make sure you get in contact. We want to hear what you like about the show, what you don't like about the show, what we can do better, etc., etc. But with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. Hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy. And we will see you soon. Ready to up your game and learn more about the thrilling world of sports betting? Introducing Double Down with Breslow, the ultimate podcast about the business of sports gambling. Join me, James Breslow, and a long list of expert guests as we dive into the art and science of the sports betting industry. Evolving regulations, technology enhancements, and the meteoric rise in the number of players makes this sector the fastest growing and most intriguing in the world. Unlock the business secrets from many of the industry's most recognizable C-suite executives, including famous odds makers and influencers every episode of double down with breslow is packed with insider tips deeply skilled analysis and in-depth discussions don't miss out on the ultimate resource for mastering the business of sports betting listen to double down with breslow on the evergreen podcast network or wherever you listen to podcasts that's double down with breslow the business of sports betting podcast